or hello, it's Puno, and you're listening to Girl Boss Radio. Last year was my first big taste in digital activism. When George Floyd happened, like many of you, I'm sure, felt like you wanted to do something like right away. And I was consuming all of this stuff, but it was making me so frustrated because the problem was just incredibly gigantic and so systemic. I really just wanted to focus on one thing that I thought I could help build a movement around. California, where I live, happens to have the most incarcerated people in the United States. And one of the people that can really influence change in the criminal justice system is the district attorney. And so I was trying to figure out how do we get a more progressive DA in Los Angeles? And I was someone who was completely new to local politics. I had no idea even what a district attorney did. I ended up reaching out to all of these local organizations that were already building these movements behind the DA. Every single organization that I reached out to all needed help with building movements online. Every single one. And I was like, wait a minute, you don't need me to like go protest? And so I wanted to talk to somebody who's been doing this for a minute. And Sarah Mora is that person. She has been doing this since she was 17. She's devoted her whole career to driving momentum online. I'm excited to talk about this with Sarah because when it comes to social, we are focusing so much on the next post, but we never really think like a digital strategist like Sarah Mora and think of the entire ecosystem. All right, we ready to get into this? Let's go. Hi, Sarah. Hi. Looking good. I'm glad we got the turtleneck memo. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm so glad you're here. We were trying to figure out how do we introduce you because I get it. I mean, I'm a slashy too. I, I do a lot of stuff. It changes all the time. So how would you describe yourself today? Yeah, I think there isn't a better time to not be ashamed of multiple titles. So to that... I share that I am a storyteller, a digital strategist, a poet, and an immigrant rights activist. All four have played a role in my upbringing and being an undocumented person and being a daughter of immigrants. I see them as like ever-evolving tools in my ways of expression and my ways of existing in society. Yes. I love this idea that your bio is a tool. So how did all of these four play a role in growing up as an undocumented person and as a daughter of immigrants? First of all, I was a C student. I was like a D minus student. I wasn't an honor roll student. I was always in detention, always in trouble. This is it, right? Like I wasn't created for higher education. And then on top of that, well, I'm undocumented, so I can't even get financial aid. I can't apply for it because Dream Act at that time, 2014, when I graduated from high school, that wasn't available. And it wasn't until senior year and and freshman year of college that I fully started to sit on the realization of my identity around immigration status. But the reality is it was always present, right? I grew up translating in hospitals from my parents, getting calls when I was in like fifth grade from my dad at his trucking job because he didn't understand what a client was saying or what his boss was saying. So I think it was always knitted into who I was day to day as a kid in high school and middle 
middle school, though I knew I was an immigrant, like it wasn't as relevant because of the place I was growing up in where there were a hundred other issues and concerns for me as a high school student, including the fact that a bunch of my friends were coming to school without breakfast and the fact that we're, we were growing up in a small low-income city that set us all in many ways up for failure. Seeing what your friends were going through in high school, is that where this activism side of you started? Yeah, but in the moment it was just, it was survival mode. It was like reactions to how we were overly detentioned and not addressing situations and environments outside of our control, outside of school that then affected our classroom activity and progress. I remember seeing fights, being put in spaces where you could somehow advocate for yourself and your classmates in superintendent meetings, but knowing now that wow we were kids like we shouldn't have had to do that wait a minute you were in a superintendent meeting explaining this person's situation we were talking about issues that were happening whether that was like people's inability to pay for school lunch or fights that were happening we were talking about a program they launched when i was in high school for students that were doing the worst basically in the grade and i was in it i was like one of the only girls and i remember being in those meetings and really trying to push for the program to advocate for each student by providing mentorship because I did see the progress and the positivity that came from existing in these programs. As someone who says they're a C student, but is courageous enough to go into a superintendent's office and make space for themselves to exist, like that's wild. Yeah, I think that speaks to just the urgency of the moment, right? I think I always reflect on that because I was so shy in high school. Like I was so quiet and I did really bad and I was really good at talking, but that wasn't a skill right in high school. Where'd you get that skill? My mom. Oh. What did your mom do that made you pick up on it? I feel like both of my parents are just very friendly people and Costa Ricans, our culture is very communal and very about like expression and just, yeah, let's have coffee together. Oh, uh, yeah. So then you were getting this tingling of advocacy. Didn't even really know what it was called at that point, but was just feeling that people's story needs to be heard. And then out of nowhere comes this talk with the president of Costa Rica who happened to come to your city in New Jersey, right? Mm -hmm. For people who don't know what happened in that conversation, can you just kind of break down what, what did you do? How did you approach him? What did you say? We literally got a ride to the location. It was a really weird location, by the way. <laughs> like a bar karaoke? It was straight up a strip club. Uh that had been cleaned out. I just have to be honest. And we were so confused. Like, why would they bring the president to a strip club? I was like, it must have been called the Four Seasons. I'm dead. That's so funny. We got there and I was just like, oh, what am I doing? This is ridiculous. Oh, it's going to be a lot of cocky people in political environments. I was like, oh my goodness, I'm dreading this. Mom was like, let's go. My mom was tired. She had come from cleaning houses. And we went in and I'm like, hi, Mr. President. Like, le quiero hacer una pregunta in Spanish. It was the interview. And I was like, I want to ask you a question. You know, I'm a DACA recipient. I want to ask you, do you know what deferred action for childhood arrivals is he was like no and i was like it was a program put in by the obama administration and i'm a beneficiary i'm 17 years old and i just graduated high school we need your support like we need to do something about this can we build diplomatic bridges to find out a way to support students that are in the u.s from countries all over the world and it could start with costa rica right and he laughed and he was like you're very young i'm proud of you he starts complimenting me and the press is like going crazy and like young Costa Rican girl as president if da, 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 da. but in the in a time like 2014 man it was so inspiring for me as a young undocumented person because I shared that I was undocumented right and I remember walking up to him and I'm like 24 now but I feel like I'm 17 again just talking about that story because I was like wow like your mind just goes boof 
it was scary. If anything, I was just like, of course, what am I doing? Pretty much 99% of the time. But the 1% just was my mom pushing me and telling me like, you could do it. And after he responded positively and he said, how can we support? Are we building a scholarship? And it was a great reaffirmation because I got to stand up and, and ask that question and was received with positive feedback which is so important for me. Wow. You were saying you were surprised even by yourself to publicly say that you were undocumented. It might seem obvious for some, but why is it hard to go public about that? So I think in telling my own story, it put myself at danger, it put my family at danger. It exposed me to a degree that I would then have no control over and still don't. But I knew that it was for something and I figured the worst that could happen is the worst that we could imagine. I think stories are really powerful and so are words. So I just hope for the best at 17 and I still do. You're now in the spotlight. You've got people's attention. And what was the next thing that you did? I started thinking about how to start having conversations in global spaces that so much fetishize and address refugee status and asylum seekers and really broadening that conversation and really sitting on the history of, of the United States of America. I was student ambassador, founder of the First Model UN at that community college, founded a refugee mentorship program so that students that wanted to study international relations and diplomacy could support local refugee communities in mentoring the kids on their homework and basically adjusting to the city. That was like truly my first project that just showed me the power of organizing diplomacy and all these big fancy worlds that I stepped into that I was like, huh. Man, so you're doing all this great work. It's 2016 and Trump gets elected. How did that impact you as an organizer? Here is in a DACA right when I ended that three-year period of feeling like, wow, there's a way. And I was just like, that's it. Like, I'm not going into diplomacy school. What do we need diplomats at a global level for when we're like having to fight for our rights at a local level? So I started organizing and I publicly came out as undocumented in 2017 with the runner-up for governor of the state of New Jersey, who's now the governor-elect. And I was part of a federal lawsuit against Trump to not rescind DACA. And it won. I was, what, 20 then? I was just mind blown. Like, I was just like, my God, who teaches you that we could sue the government? <laughs> All right, class, today, how to sue the government. <laughs> right. And I was just, wow. Oh, hey, Carly. How's it going? There's a little lag there. How's your Wi-Fi? It's a little slow. My router's from the late 90s, so. Get out. That's it. Is it not supposed to dial when you turn it on? <laughs> have you heard of Wi-Fi 6? I didn't know there was a Wi-Fi 5, so no. <laughs> Before, routers were supposed to deliver fast internet just for like your laptop and your smartphone. Right. But now we got consoles, we got tablets, we got 4K TVs, we got thermostats. Yes. All these smart devices are like fighting for bandwidth in your home today. And Netgear, has Wi-Fi 6 products. They have improved coverage, fewer dead zones, and a more productive and less frustrating Wi-Fi experience. I feel like that should be in the constitution. Life, liberty, less frustrating Wi-Fi. You gotta go check out netgear.com business and then use the code girlboss10, get yourself 10% off and 4X more Wi-Fi. Netgear.com business with code girlboss10 for 10% off. That's it. 
Puno, you always hook me up. <laughs> I love that we're just always talking about deals. I love a deal. <laughs> hey, Carly. Puno. Oh. <laughs> hey, how's it going? It's good, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, spoiler alert, I took your Squarespace course. And I got to tell you, once I had that free trial that you offered. Yes. I got so addicted. I just kept messing around. And then before I knew it, my site was actually done. Yes. Yeah. It was awesome. You really just need to get a trial and just mess around. Get in there. Get in there. Yeah. Press all the buttons. Press all the buttons. And if you mess up, and I'm putting that in air quotes. You see me. Yeah, I see you. The quotes are in the air. You know, wah, wah. Yeah. You could just start another trial. Yeah, that's what I love about it. If I changed my mind about my aesthetic, which I do, mm-hmm. we all do. I mean, it's so last season. I mean, it's always last season. Yeah. But I could mess with it until it was right, mm-hmm. which was awesome. Yeah. Well, guess what? What? If you go to squarespace.com backslash girl boss, oh. you can get a free trial. Damn. Yeah. And then whenever you're ready to launch, you can use the offer code girl boss. Mm-hmm. For 10% off your first order. Oh, so I can finally launch this thing. For 10% off your first purchase of a website or a domain. Finally, yes. Yeah. Okay. I know. All right. That 10% is like, you know. It's legit. It's legit. Yeah. No. Yeah. It's (laughs) it's a discount. It is a discount. It's actually very helpful. I'm not even going to lie. Yeah. This episode also is sponsored by Canva. I'm just noodling on Canva Pro. Pro? Wow. I mean, I've used Canva before, but not uh, not the Pro. Okay, so Pro is where it's at. Okay, okay. Tell me more. So I'm a designer. You know this. Yes, yes. And I have to use all the tools, but I have recently been using Canva more with clients. Ooh, okay. Well, so this has become pretty common is clients want us to design their social. Mm, makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Canva Pro has like really leveled up. Okay. One of the big things is fonts. Oh, yeah. Custom fonts. That's important. Mm-hmm. So with Canva Pro, you can actually upload all your fonts. <gasps> what? You got to sit down. Too excited. I'm not even done yet. I love fonts. I'm a font person. I get a little crazy for fonts. With Canva Pro, you can upload your logo. <gasps> You can upload fonts. You can add your color palette. So you're not beholden to a template. No, ma'am. Oh, my God. Not with Pro. Where have I been? The other thing, too, is you can design with your team. So you can invite your team through Canva Pro, and then you guys can all collaborate on stuff. Oh, that's perfect. Okay, I didn't even tell you how much it costs. Damn, there's more? Just guess. Uh, It's got to be expensive. I mean, all these features. Uh Uh-uh. It's affordable. It's actually $13 a month. If you pay yearly, it's $9.99 a month. I can afford that. I know you're like, where's the girl boss code? I mean, that's why I show up here every week. We got something crazy for you. Oh, dang. I need to hold on to my hat. Free 45-day extended trial. Check it out, canva.me slash girlboss to get your free 45-day extended trial. That's C-A-N-V-A dot M-E slash girlboss. Dang, I'm there. 
What is the campaign that you are most proud of, that you were part of? One that was really creative when I first started was a campaign to draw attention to beauty pageants in the Latino community. And for this beauty pageant, it was 2017, one year after Trump was in office. So there was a lot of conversation around immigration reform and what immigration meant to communities. And this campaign was off of a message that said, doesn't matter the size, it doesn't matter who you are. Everyone is accepted as was essentially the general message, but DACA recipients couldn't apply. And if we know anything about mainstream media is that DACA is the most mainstream legal status. So if DACA recipients couldn't apply for Nuestra Belleza Latina, which was the Latino beauty pageant, then what was that to say about the rest of the community? And so we know certain requirements are asked of beauty pageants, but in this one, for the most part, folks stayed within the US. They didn't even leave the country. And so I built a campaign with a series of eight videos where I spoke with girls from all across the US and we shared a very loud message collectively in these videos. And I started the campaign pulling content from the beauty pageant. It was like, duh, 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 very dramatic intro. Yeah. Exactly yeah. like that. <laughs> and then I was like, what's up guys? Sin taja, sin limites, sin excusas. And that means the exact slogan. But what does that mean when DACA recipients can apply? And so I'm laughing now because I realized it takes some audacity to create a campaign like this, but that is what I'm most proud of because I pushed for addressing this head on. And these channels that represent the broader Latino community, that is in very much part affected by immigration and how disheartening it must be for women going in to compete and being turned down because they're DACA recipients. Like, my goodness, that should already be part of the considerations, especially in the US. And it went viral. Yeah. A lot of the older queens of the pageant reached out and were like, how can we help you wait so what happened did they change their policy so i have like two emails or three from people that worked with higher ups and then there was a lot of feedback where they were kind of like we want to talk to you and i was just like no like that's not the point right you want it to change yes because a lot of conversations after campaigns end up being conversations with campaigns like this, the message is very simple and public. So unless you're being hired for consulting on how to make that happen, there's no need to really be taken up on a meeting that you can't solve. But yeah, I should definitely try to dedicate some time this summer to do a follow-up campaign where I'm kind of like, did y'all get the message? <laughs> It was such a, a great way to like segue in 2017 when I was doubting myself a lot about digital strategy three years after high school. Why were you doubting yourself? Like I was 20, three years after community college and Trump and DACA, who do I think to go into digital strategy? I mean, I don't want to generalize, but I think there is so many rooms I've been in where, where folks are like, we don't have funding for what you want to do in this space. Or mm, we don't know if that's a priority right now, especially in social justice. Unfortunately, our communities don't have the luxury of focusing on like digital strategy. Mm. After that summer, I got fired from my first nonprofit job for digital strategy. And so I was thrown off completely as to if I should even continue again. But I got elected as president of Women's March Youth. I found ways to add digital strategist uh, work, but it was a different world, right? It was more on the ground for me. I was able to be at the border as a volunteer digital strategist. And so my work directly went from that to like creating videos and working directly on lives and like graphics, information, content related to the border community and how they were already doing the work. It was like yeah. decentralizing the narrative. 
and saying, folks, there are border towns and border communities, so a totally different tone. How do you pick which campaigns to work on? I think like everybody else in movements, I haven't been the chooser of my agenda. It's been whatever space I'm working in. I'm the founder of Population Mike, which is a media space think tank for storytellers, not only in the U.S., but globally, who are looking to disrupt mainstream media conversations. Through Population Mike, I designed a campaign called Digital Pop, and I've been working on that basically since I got out of high school. I'm taking pro bono small nonprofits and I'm revamping them. I'm giving them like a digital makeover and making sure their online presence is up to date as if they would have hired me for marketing. A lot of the spaces like the oldest garment worker center in the U.S. doesn't have social media presence. And so I took them on as a pro bono client. And I'm also working with a network of undocumented professionals based out of California and helping them build their presence online. Yeah. How do you look at campaigns in terms of telling a nonprofit this is really important because this is where it's going to start moving the needle for you guys? How do you explain it to them? I think that's what's been the battle. I think that's why even when I introduce myself, I'm not ashamed at all in saying, dude, I have six titles because all of them are so intricate and important to my role as a digital strategist in social justice spaces. The importance of knowing how to use words and narrative and stories to better position folks for creating ecosystems that then result in resources is what I'm good at. You cannot go to school for what I'm doing. This is like literally we're inventing a whole new major. I really just straight up reach out for a space like the garment Workers center they saw me in la and they were just kind of like oh we love what you do like we'd love to collab and the second i got on the call with them i told them you're amazing like i just broke down how it would look to present their work online and they were like that's good and that's when i was like well, i'd love to take you on as a pro bono kind they literally represent populations of people that cannot get on social media because they don't have the time to in their day so positioning them to see how important the internet could be in their fight at large the support i offer for for free ends up being the divider between how much support an organization gets online or not, which is why I've made Population Mike more official because it's providing a whole service that definitely is new in the movement. So in 2020, social media became a really powerful tool for activism, but you know, it doesn't come without its downsides. So what gets lost or misconstrued once a post just boom, goes viral, specifically when it comes to immigration? Is there an example that comes to mind? The border was trending and posts were going viral and I felt like there was a really important need for people with a platform to say, if your post is going viral, you should be redirecting that traction to local orgs. I was selected to be a digital strategist at the border in San Diego, which is by the way, the largest migration border in the US. I fell into many different conversations and situations that allowed for me to grasp the importance of decentralizing mainstream media and really just working to amplify again the orgs that existed but again not existing online so being at the border at the time was really important for me because i was there as a supporter figuring out ways that i could lead the conversation around the border and a carefulness with how we approach border communities to make sure folks understood that despite whose posts are going viral there are local orgs that don't have the luxury to have curated posts yeah 
for these smaller nonprofit organizations, how do you make digital strategy more accessible? Because they're doing all this work, but they don't necessarily have the same resources as a national nonprofit would. Yeah. Well, I think for sure through Digital Pop, being able to essentially take them as pro bono clients and working with them on things as basic as graphics, right? Your logo, your website, if they even have one, is kind of the entry point for how I work with a lot of spaces. Once they start to see the framing and the positioning of how their messaging looks, they grasp it just by sight, right? How people see it is how they perceive it. So it's not like I'm like a a company of 300 people, right? Really, it's just me with a really big hope that with enough support, this can exist permanently for orgs and make sure that the people that have been doing the work for decades aren't left out of that conversation. That's what Digital Pop is. It's introducing what a digital pop into that org would look like. And so we will take it slowly. Basics is important to me because it is building that trust relationship. We're not going to sit here and just try to establish a hundred things at the same time when orgs for the most part that are local are used to functioning without technology and functioning without social media. But I think it allows for technology to be introduced gently, despite how aggressive it is in the internet. You are trying to build a movement and Mm -hmm. you are trying to build momentum, but how do you think about virality? For one, I do think a lot of people see movements online as like just existing online. And though many communities have been born online, movements started on the ground, period. If the focus is virality, that is a strategy on virality. But I don't just focus on virality. I feel like virality is just a consequence of being organic. I don't focus on virality. I focus on community because I really believe in the power of stories. What is the narrative that's now going to be adapted after something goes viral? What is the landing page? Where is the community host for these folks that start to follow you? Like, how are things going to function post-virality? And these are very new conversations that we're going to have to start having, and I'm sure digital strategy will then become a new branch and it will be more official. But I personally don't focus on that because I think the internet is the internet. With so much information online, a lot of times when you see a story that is framed with a solution, it might leave you wanting to click more. And I don't mean like clickbait. I don't mean like violent posts that cause you to turn your stomach at the sight of the post and then leave you wondering where is the world going to go after that post. I'm talking about posts that give you what is taking place and then give you how to solve it. There's not enough of that. Yeah. And I really understand that a lot of people will come to me about paid ads. I got these paid ads that are everywhere. And before I even say that you can get into paid advertising, I ask, do you have an email list? The highlights, the education, the graphics, the logo. Do you have emails that are ready to go out? Like that is a lot of work. You've got to have the structure that's ready to hold action or like you said, it's going to fall flat. As long as you have that rhythm and that consistency there, then you're in a place to respond. Yeah. I've heard people say, well, at least it went viral, but at least a lot of people want to help after this. And at least, and I'm like, why are you saying at least? The point is there really is just so much untapped potential for the internet. When we see the internet, we see it as its own functioning beast. And that makes me mad because although there's many robots, like it requires human interaction as well. There are ways to use the internet, not just let it use you. And while we're on it, it's important for folks to know that. What do you mean by not let it use you? 
I think we're like, oh, this phone, I'm so overwhelmed. But it's understanding that we are also our own person and our own brain. Like we have to begin to have conversations about seeing it as a tool rather than something that exists on its own. Mm-hmm. In my Instagram course, I always try to break down the algorithm because I want people to understand that your interactions with it can also be positive. The way that you look at how it functions, how the ecosystem works can be reframed. For example, whenever you think about Spotify and the playlist got it wrong, you're not like, oh, the algorithm. You're just like, oh man, I liked a lot of songs that didn't make a lot of sense. But to your point, it is understanding that that is your input. Yeah. What do you think it takes to be an organizer that can help create real momentum? Yeah, absolutely. It's a marathon, not a race. That gentleness and that intentionality. I'm not saying I'm like the queen of gentle either, but I'm just saying that's something that has helped me as a person who started as an organizer, then started to shift more into digital strategy, knowing where it makes sense to add more and where it makes sense to just take a few steps back and take it or the collective pace that it's going in. We should be more aware that our pain doesn't have to be shared if we don't want to. And knowing that is understanding that that doesn't mean you don't feel anything. It just means you're choosing how to react. And that is also okay because the internet is one of the spaces we exist in and not the entire world. So it sometimes feels like it. Mm. What is an everyday way that listeners can support immigration reform? Support your local organizations led by immigrant leaders. I mean, I noticed a lot that there were a lot of spaces led by people who weren't immigrants and who were so far from being impacted by immigration reform that it was disheartening because then you found out about all these orgs that didn't get any attention that were led by immigrant leaders. And the difference was exposure, right? Sometimes folks will listen to a white-led org more than they will to the immigrant-led org. In the past, you've talked about the power of storytelling to decentralize narratives. So what do you mean by decentralized narratives? Mainstream media leads what we think about communities and populations, right? Mainstream media is TV, the internet, commercials, ads, everything that is involved in that. When I think of decentralizing mainstream narrative, it's the importance of folks locally existing with that oomph that others have on online platforms, but locally, so that way nobody else can reclaim a narrative, right? There's no way if I live in New York that I'm claiming a narrative in Chicago, unless there's a direct tie. Being part of decentralizing this idea that whoever has more followers, whoever has more this should be listened to is the same concept that we exist with before where we listen to whatever channels popular, but then there is a podcast that is talking about critical issues and it isn't being heard. Why? Because that is the way that everything works media wise. This question is from the community. I get so angry when I read the news and I don't know what to do with my anger. Do you get angry and what do you do with your anger? Yeah, I always am angry. <laughs> and that's something that I don't say a lot, but I think it shows in my stories and it shows in my work. It's very much also triggered by working from home and my mom goes out to clean houses, my dad's a mechanic, so I'm not existing in a world far from those migrant rights conversations. 
since I'm existing in that environment, I feel like every day I'm energized. Me going out and screaming at the top of my lungs will still require me having to do so every single day. If for anyone listening that does feel like that and the person who asked the question, knowing that if you have the privilege to think about advocating, then that within itself requires you to take a moment and to not feel, as this might sound a little tough, but I wanna share that, not feel entitled to an answer so fast because that is exactly the position of the communities, right? You wake up every single day you don't have a solution so don't you worry there is so much room in the human rights movement for all of us to do something about it So on Girlboss this season, we are talking about how people are redefining success. How have you redefined success? So I'm redefining success by realizing that my work is rooted in intentionality. It is rooted in how can I really be part of purpose and be part of being hope in a society that's inclining us to doubt and is relying on us doubting ourselves. Is there anything that you're going to be doing now or next that you're excited about in terms of getting that feeling of purpose and success? Yeah. Having Digital Pop as the first program of Population Mike, I'm going to be able to really curate digitally the stories of these organizations I'm taking as pro bono clients. So I think that in itself is my purpose because being able to zoom in on each story is so exciting for me because I'm going to be able to take almost like a lens and make people focus with me on these individual spaces that exist across the U.S. Yeah. Eventually, globally. I, I'm I'm here with you because I also believe in the power of storytelling. And I feel like it's so important for us to be able to talk about each other's stories. Yeah. And- even just that, like not existing just as the role we're doing, but even breaking down our individual ways of how we got there to exist in these environments. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Well, thank you for allowing me to help tell your story and to help you with your mission. Thank you for having me. If you want to learn more about Sarah and Population Mike, check out the links in our show notes at girlboss.com backslash podcast. And the best way you can support Girl Boss Radio is by subscribing to this podcast. That's right. And if you're feeling even more motivated, we would really love a review. Also, don't forget to take a peep at our newsletter. Not only will you get access to a ton of actionable advice, but you can even get the 411 on some really cool job postings and they're all just delivered right to your inbox, which is awesome. Girl Boss Radio is a production of I Love Creative Studio, original music composed by Nija. This episode was produced by Juliana Clark and Christopher Olin. Engineering was done by Stephanie Aguilar. Our editorial director is Clement. And special thanks, as always, to Taylor, Nora Agency, Kaylee, and America. Until next week, Puno is out.